Hi, my name is Elijah and welcome to The Roots Podcast, an interview channel that dives into the personal stories of those in the hospitality industry, whether it be in the restaurant, out in the field, and those in the media, as they look back on where it all started for them. It is a retrospective look on the passion, ambition, and drive involved in the competitive industry. Roots Podcast is proudly supported by Sydney Direct Fresh Produce, the fruit and veg supplier led by Luke Kohler, who has provided Sydney with some of the best and local produce since he was 16 years old and still smashing it today. My next guest is the unstoppable race running and storytelling Fra Seljo, smashing it out as the managing editor over at SBS Food, whose real role, let's be real, is just managing to make us hungry again, purely with descriptive words and delicious food content, you know what I'm talking about, with Fra's excellent ability to capture a good story and share it in such an emotive way, I'm excited to hear her story and the influences that helped shape who she is today. So thanks for tuning into this episode of The Roots Podcast, I hope you all enjoyed as much as I did. So before we go, um, for people listening, I suppose, we're just chatting before about uh, SBS and, and Facebook. I didn't actually realize that. Like when you started talking about it, I had actually no concept that that was even like affected you guys. Like it wasn't even a thing that I thought of when I was writing this stuff down. I was like, thought, fuck, like that's actually pretty interesting. Like for, for people listening, explain uh, again, if it's not too uh, much of a pain in the ass, how SBS was affected by that. Yeah, I mean, being SBS food, more often than not, people associate us with recipe content and um, editorial voice, which is a really great way for people to kind of access us. But we're also part of the SBS, you know, umbrella, which is as a news publisher, that's ultimately what we come under, a media agency. So um, when I like to call it the Facebook current, you know, status pending um, relationship... (laughs) It's complicated. Um, it's complicated. It's complicated. Um, happened, what, now 10 days ago. Um, it was a really interesting time because, one, it's about government, you know, um, intervention and also acknowledgement of news publications and that being a service to the population and to platforms like Facebook. It's a business model, ultimately. And, you know, Facebook trying to stand their ground around being a open platform for everyone to share and access content. Absolutely. I think I have my own opinions, obviously, um, but, <laughs> but SVS, you know, definitely um, fell under that news publishing media bracket. And so we didn't have access to a Facebook account for that week. It was a bizarre time because, I mean, it's not like, it's not like Facebook is the be all and end all of what we do every day, yeah, but yeah, it's right. a part of, reaching our audiences it's a way to share our writers in a really um, popular medium for people to comment and create discussion points um it's a great way for our audience to see us in other spaces and and that's a way to reach new people you know you you have an instagram audience you have a facebook audience you have a twitter audience we have a pinterest audience we have a youtube audience so people are on different mediums and yeah, it, it was a really interesting time in the world. It was a, it was a bit of a scratch-your-head moment. What do we do with this content in this main platform that everyone or, you know, a lot of people do consume? Yeah, yeah. And did Facebook let, let you go, like, let SBS know that it was just you guys were not going to have access to it or they just cut it? Um, yeah, so the way that it happened was I had read an article on my way into work that morning. I remember reading it and thinking, oh, they've passed this le- legislation and, oh, Facebook isn't happy about it. And they said they're going to go one or two ways, either try and work with the government on 
you know, um, a, I guess a concept or a, a, a rebuttal approach, maybe, <laughs> if you will. Um, or, or we're really sorry, but we'll have to kind of shut you down. And then that morning we got some comms around what that would mean for the organization from our own team, which was really great. And then, you know, slowly but surely throughout the day, we our access and what we could see was kind of mute. Wow. Yeah, right. And then by that evening, we couldn't even see what was, you know, scheduled or unscheduled or what our metrics were or what our data was from mm. like weeks and months yeah. prior. So we obviously have campaigns that we run on there throughout the year. We do a, you know, massive Jan 26 um, content reach. Uh, for NADOC, we also do content. Uh, we have upcoming, you know, Mardi Gras and Eurovision, which we do massive social How is that campaigns. coming along, actually? That's pretty exciting. Yeah, there's like lots of incredible... Um, I mean, the Mardi Gras team has done an incredible job this year because you're dealing with, I mean, that little thing called COVID that everyone <laughs> is still, you know, a part of. And it's now a ticketed event in the stadium, but we're still broadcasting it. I'm actually going to be on the float this year, <laughs> which is really fun. A social distance float. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me preface that. Um, yeah, it's... So they're still doing the parade. What's what's up? So with that? the parade is going to happen at the SCG. Oh right, yeah, 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 and it's a ticketed event, so they can control numbers. Whereas normally along Oxford Street, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just like it's just a free for all party. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which is the essence, I think, of what Mardi Gras is. You know, bringing everybody together. <laughs> but yeah, now it's a controlled, in, <gasps> controlled party environment, yeah. which will be, I think, still really great. Um, yeah, we still have a parade element, but it's a shortened parade time slot, and it's a really regimented so to speak like roll out like they would i mean it's a huge it's a huge deal to get all those floats and people and um to put an event on in yeah. sydney especially during a pandemic <laughs> like that's like the next level yeah yeah you know covid protocols and covid safe <laughs> yeah what a time um, so so how are sbs kind of marketing that or getting involved in that we have a huge marketing team that are like basically doing outdoor and digital campaigns around that. And that just means across social, there'll be a lot of um, video assets and behind the scenes with hosts. And also we're live broadcasting it again. Yeah, right. So, you know, it's, it's really fun working at SBS because <laughs> you end up kind of, we're really fortunate. We have a digital side. We also have a TV side, we have an on-demand streaming platform. This sounds like a plug for the channel that I work for, but <laughs> I mean, it could be. I've been there a long time. Um, but it's, yeah, it's an incredible offering um, to re... I mean, I always kind of go back to this, but it's kind of like to tell stories and reach new people. Yeah, That's yeah. really what we're founded on, you know, as a public broadcaster. Um, I mean, I grew, I grew up, you know, watching SBS with my family. So yeah. I feel like I've come full circle. I'm like... <laughs> watching it and now I'm thinking about what our audience is watching yeah, and yeah. now what are other ways that our audience can consume what we're doing, Yeah, you know, from a digital standpoint. Mm. Yeah, so. it's, it's very interesting. Like, I mean, SBS has been relatively diverse like for a while, right? It hasn't really just kind of become diverse over the past two decades. It's always kind of had that there going for them, which is nice, you know? Like, yeah, it's, we're, we're fortunate, I think. Uh, diversity is a really important and, you know, hot topic right mm. now. And especially through businesses and media organizations and that visibility of change, yeah. you know, really happening, which I think is an important one. I think SBS has been kind of under the radar in terms of it's always sort of perpetuated a diverse kind of offering, you know, and somewhat even niche maybe. I think a lot of people 
don't like to sort of use the word niche because it sort of boxes them into this like grassrootsy market. Mm. But I think, you know, we were, I mean, I remember growing up and watching football on there and watching the late news with my parents. And um, I even remember watching Food Safari with Maeve O'Mara. <laughs> that was one of my first like food moments. And I, you know, coming full circle, working with her on a food safari, you know, in the food team as a production cohort, like, just a very, you know, holistic way of looking at my time at SBS. But yeah, it's always been a really diverse workplace. I'm really fortunate. Like we are a really small team, but I've really streamlined and work really hard and and have an incredible suite of writers and content creators that work from all, you know, walks of life and backgrounds and, and with their own stories to tell. I think that's what I love. I love hearing and being able to share is, you know, I'm here as like a managing editor of SBS Food, but I'm just one sort of cog in an incredible space where people just want to share content and tell their stories and we can offer that, you know? Yeah. I mean, you talked about going full circle in terms of Mm. a lot of what you're doing now kind of and what you're getting involved with is reminding you of a lot of what you grew up kind of doing. So if we can kind of get a bit of an insight to, to what it was like for you growing up, you know, if we can bring it full circle, yeah. talk to us, like t- tell us what were some of the influences and what was important for you growing up because it seems like what you're doing now is really resonating when it comes to things like that. So, and that's what is kind of good, you know, because I feel like a lot of people, that seems to be what's fulfilling when it comes to them growing up and finding that career and that job is they'll find that it resonates somewhere or like something really personal to them, you know, when they find that job that they're really enjoying that are passionate about. And when they really think about it, think shit, like, you know, my parents grew up kind of teaching me this or that and that the way they did something really influenced, you know, what I was doing. So like the one person that sticks in my head is Parker Blaine. who does a photography for like broadsheet and stuff like that. And, and when we were talking, he kind of had this retrospective moment thinking, Oh fuck. Like my dad did a lot of cooking and you know, my mum was like into modeling and art and stuff like that. And so me getting into like lifestyle and food photography, like for him, it was just a natural progression, but he didn't think that, you know, his parents being into those things really influenced it. But when he, when he looked back, he was like, wow, like, I think it kind of did like, you know, it makes sense if that's what I grew up, you know, highlighting and, and parents kind of appreciating most that then you see the world through them you know, it's weird how that can affect you. So I'm thinking like maybe that's something similar with you. So yeah, how how was it for you? Yeah, I mean, to say that I love food is probably like the understatement (laughs) of the century. Um, I think I'm known in my circles as like the positive overfeeder. And it's, you know, something that um, I take so much joy in right now. Like I love entertaining and I love cooking. As a child, I grew up um, in a really close family. My parents are Bosnian migrants they came just before the war um well actually my mum came just before the war she actually came the year of Chernobyl when Chernobyl happened really she came here and like she, as in before Chernobyl or after? as in like literally right before Chernobyl wow so had she had waited you know had she waited a few more weeks to come over she wouldn't be able to because there was a bit of a ban and Oh, was there? Yeah. So when Chernobyl happened because they're within that kind of red zone yeah. that's quite close to um the active zone. So being in the Balkan region, yeah. you know, they were all put on high alert. 
Wow. And she was like, oh, had I waited, you know, an extra couple of months, I probably wouldn't have been able to come to Australia with your father. Wow. But, I mean, their story is pretty incredible. My dad had worked uh, as a project manager down in the Snowy Mountains on the Jindabyne scheme. And he had already lived and worked in Australia for a little while. And then, I mean, migrant story, went back home, met my, my mother, who was like the love of his life, and then was like, pack a suitcase, come to Australia. And she was like, sure. I mean, it's a really simplistic approach. When you know, you know. When you know, you know. And my mom um, is a maths professor, incredibly um, intelligent and sassy woman. Uh, who, you know, is one of five children, came over with, with my father. Yeah. And, th- and, you know, her thinking was, oh, I'll be here for six to 12 months and then I'll go back to my family and my life back home. Like, this will be a nice mm. little interlude. And then after a year, she um, fell pregnant with me and then with my brother and then the war happened and then say la vie, life as she knew it. Um, was now an Australian life um, and associating, uh, you know, herself as a, you know, Australian and Bosnian woman now. And, I, you know, she came to the country. I'm sort of painting this really general picture, but she came to the country with, like, a suitcase and not a word of English. Wow. Like, absolutely. All she And her connective tissue, and I think this is what my connection to food was, because when I was younger, she was constantly in the kitchen, always cooking. I mean, it's this... It's this typical story that you hear where you kind of want to eat out and you want to eat the fast food and you want to eat what everyone else in the playground's eating. And my mom's just home cooking and you just don't have that appreciation for right. it back then. I was like, mom, why are you hand rolling phyllo sheets around the house? I just want to go to McDonald's or have like sticky soy chicken from down the road. <laughs> what? Like, you know, because it was such a normal part of our life, yeah, you know, yeah. um, I grew up watching her make baklava pretty much every second week. Uh, She had these cotton sheets and this sanded down rolling pin that my father had specifically made for her to make burek. Wow. And I remember my brother and I are so cheeky. We'd just be like running around the house and she'd be in hysterics because all the phyllo sheets were drying around the house because we didn't have a table big enough. We didn't have a dishwasher. We didn't have a microwave. We didn't have, we didn't have any appliances. Yeah, Everything yeah. was hand done. She had this hand nut mixer going. Like these are the sort of memories I have of food in my house. Yeah, my yeah. mom being angry at us running around and also just her kind of plonking me up on the kitchen counter while she would do something and just chat to me. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't really have any interest in food as a oh, I want to be a food journalist or I want to work in food. Quite the opposite. I liked food, but it was such a disconnect for me in terms of my outside world. It was my family world. Right. It was what we did at home, what we we ate. Everyone in the street used to come over. My friends used to love coming around. They're like, oh, my parents are working late. Can we come up? Yeah, come on over. Let's go. Let's just eat. (laughs) Those are the days. Yeah. (laughs) Our like fridge is always full. Our pantry is in abundance, you know. Mum still goes shopping, even though there's no space, you know? <laughs> and yeah, the, the food memories I have are really beautiful, very personal memories for me and all of my friends that know me, um, know my mother. And so it's a, bit, a, a little bit less personal now because everyone seems to know her. So it's a little bit like everyone comes on in. But yeah, growing up, that's what it was. And I remember my mum sort of teaching me technique, but as a child, me not really wanting to take it in. I was like, yeah, that's cool. When do we get to eat it? Or like, (laughs) 
you know, not really being so fascinated. Yeah, I liked right. the conversation around the food rather than the food itself. Right. And then it probably wasn't until I started like my first coffee and baking job at like, you know, what, 15, mm. 14. Yeah. And yeah, it was um, from there just this idea of work, working. Because for my mother, it was, you know, appreciate education. Don't take anything for granted. Like that was like drilled in from the onset and having, you know, having worked in, in a really cute little cafe and a bakery and learning that and then coming home and being excited. I think my mum was a bit like, I've been doing this with you for 15 years and, <laughs> and now, and now you get paid for it. And this is of interest. Yeah. You know? um, so yeah, food is still a huge part of my life falling. You know, I say falling into food journalism. It kind of was a fall. I sort of went to university um, doing a media and history degree, but I sort of toyed with, oh, I really love the law and I love the kind of black and white kind of nature of the legal system, but also the intricacies of it. Oh, and right. there was this part of me that's like, oh, I really thought I would quite organically fall into law because I liked that debating, I liked yeah, that yeah, research yeah. aspect. <laughs> I watched so many TV series where I felt like I was in the courtroom, you know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and I somehow like, you know, I mean, somehow I make it sound like it just got handed to me, but you know, went, went for an interview at SBS post my uni degree and yeah, my first, my first job was literally making DVD copies of programs for the publicity team to send out. Yeah. Right. So back in the day when DVDs were still a thing, (laughs) yeah, it was basically just, yeah, take a, um, cause we used to, before we all went through like a digitization project and everything was available, you know, everything was available, uh, via like online servers and stuff. It's, yeah, yeah. And like, you know, mediums like that. Um, yeah, it was all done on DVD. So you just had to send all your press material out. And I used to just stay in this dub center, we used to call it. And it was just literally hundreds of copies of programs that we were producing. Yeah, right. So after uni, that was kind of your first big job was at SBS pretty much. Yeah. So how old are you at this point? Yeah, so I would have been, I think I graduated like 21. Yeah, I was 17. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so 22. I would have been 22 when I graduated, sorry. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And just landed SBS off the bat. Yeah, well, I went for a few. So I was... I was working in hosp- in hospo before then, so I was working in some you know restaurants, cafes, managing a cafe. Let's talk. Let's doing, go. Doing events. <laughs> I I think when you're at uni, you just pick up whatever work you can oh, get yeah. and whatever you can work around your hours. Yeah, so yeah. I loved that. I loved working in restaurants. I liked. I just loved the vibe, the ridiculousness, <laughs> the banter, the customers. <sighs> the orders that you get through that would come through and you'd be like, what is this? And I'm yeah. sure, you know, it still happens now. Oh, of course it does. Yeah, it happened over the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Oh, pray tell. What happened over the weekend? Uh, uh, well, let me think about it. I mean, a few happens, but I don't know what I'm legally allowed to say, but no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, is this being recorded? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, Brent. Um, yeah, no, we had, like, I mean, one of the things I was telling somebody the other day is that people just come in, right, and they're, they're told that they've got a de- set degustation. They're like, yeah, no worries. Uh, and then they come in, they, they sit down, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll just get the seven course. But uh, during this whole point, they, this, people just wouldn't have looked at the menu, right? Mm. Just didn't see what was on offer. They just like, oh, yellow, good restaurant, vegetable restaurants, come in, go. So, we got to the last hot course and we put it down. That's an eggplant dish. And 
they were sitting there for like 10 minutes, like like kids with their peas, you know, just kind of moving it around the plate. And uh, after 10 minutes, the front of house bring it back and um, and come up to us on the pass and say, oh yeah, these uh, these people just told us they don't like eggplant. Just don't like eggplant. They're just not that they didn't like this eggplant. They just don't like eggplant, right? right. So it's like, why didn't why wouldn't you have just said something before we started? You know, like why now? Why tell us now? Like, you know, like we don't do a la carte. We just do degustation. If you get seven course, that's like all the dishes on offer essentially. Yeah. So we don't just have extra dishes like with prep and mise en place ready to go. So we're like, fuck. Like now we're gonna come up with a whole new hot dish for you that doesn't have eggplant, right? There are a couple of elements in the on the dish that have eggplant. So. Now, while we're busy in, in the shit, it's like, fuck, now we've got to think of what we have that's not going to take like half an hour to cook. We've got to get something on the grill, cook it as soon as possible and do something. So, it's just like, you Teddy's, know, like... Teddy's on the grill going, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's so funny. It's like, oh God, like this could have been easily avoided had you just looked at the menu, you know, like that's, I just assume everyone looks at the menu. Like, why wouldn't you look at the menu when you go eat somewhere? Like, seriously, especially when you don't like... Veg, some certain vegetable like, yeah and I think I think that's it you, we make assumptions and you know customers make us make assumptions like, yeah. like like we all make assumptions about what that meal is going to be or they can just they can just turn it around they brought out eggplant and I can't eat it I'm yeah. sure they have something else going you guys yeah, are like surely. we literally have like 50 other tables to serve <laughs> yeah. at the same time you know it's yeah. these assumptions of like in what world do I have something else just lying around it's just like man obviously you don't work in hospitality to know how much of a like you know, pain that just, just doing that, you know, like, but I, I loved, you know, I met some incredible people. I worked with some really like interesting characters some backpackers oh, that were really fun. So good. Yeah. Just so many fun stories. Uh, I remember working in this cafe at, um, in Bondi and, and I really loved it cause it was such a diverse bunch of people. Like <laughs> they were like, not, not in the kind of cultural sense. Well, I mean, they were culturally, but more in just, you know, struggling artists and painters to like engineering wannabes to, you know, people who just didn't want to like brave the actual workforce and just wanted to work in hospitality and ride that wave and have fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I remember, you know, I was in charge of kind of managing the staff and doing the orders and every so often I would just jump in the kitchen. And more often than not, I would jump in the kitchen because we were so understaffed. Yeah. It was so hard to get good staff. I mean, to get staff, but yeah. So you jump in the kitchen and I'm helping helping Bernie, our chef, in there. And he's just like, can you just stay in here all day? And I thought, I can't because <laughs> I don't know what's happening out there. I can't even see what's happening out there. And, <laughs> you know, you finish your shift and some days you just have a laugh because yeah. it's just such a whirlwind and you almost don't remember what you did that day. Yeah, it's so And then funny. other days you kind of feel really good and then other days you just, you know what, I've just got to chalk that one up into the I'm not going to touch you box because – Tomorrow's a new day and I've got to reopen and I've got to dive back in. And yeah. And then I think from there I worked, um, I did, I mean, I did random catering jobs, which I loved. I actually really enjoyed the catering side. As in you worked for the catering company or you No, catered? I used to cater. Oh, wow. From my, um, my like single little kitchen back in the day. It was more, it wasn't sort of, uh, I mean, I'm not going to get found out by the ATO, but I mean, it wasn't like a business. It was more just friends of mine who had random shoots who were like, oh, we need to cater for 15 people. Can yeah, you yeah, help yeah, us yeah. out? And I'm like, yeah. And I had the food contacts because I was working in wholesale. So I used to work at this like pasta wholesaler. Then I worked at this deli for several years as well. Like, and 
this is not just like one job at a time. It was like three or four at a time oh, wow. that I was working. So you were making pastas and stuff. Yeah, I was making that. pastas. That's and then, sick. And then also working in the cheese counter at the deli. I wow. mean, the deli was one of my like favorite parts of my, my life in terms of stories and memories and people. And yeah, you just get to know customers' orders and people get to know you. And you almost feel like you have a – there's like a hairdresser moment where you know more about that person's <laughs> life than you ever anticipated. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I sort of was, you know, in that space and almost, and I was nannying as well at one point. Wow. And. Is this just because you wanted to or you. Yeah, I just wanted to do a few different things and I was paying my way through uni. So yeah. it was oh, like. Oh, right, during uni, yeah. Yeah, yeah so it was like, you know, offset my study with lots of work um, yeah. and not just one kind of job. I needed to, I, w- I wanted to do a few things yeah. and I really loved it. So coming out of uni was great, but it also meant. Okay, so now you have to make that decision of what are you going to do for the rest of your life? <laughs> and I think what you know you often don't get told is, oh, you're doing a degree that you might not really fall into writing straight away. Because I fell in love with writing probably in the last two years of my uni degree in a more kind of broad sense. I loved writing as a kid. I used to journal all the time. I used to do. Uh, I used to sort of. Um, doodles and like just you know kind of play around muck around write poetry do do a bit of slam you know but like (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I used to love writing I was not yeah I used used to do public speaking as a kid it was just something that I enjoyed doing (laughs) you're like oh she's gonna slam at the end of this yeah yeah, I will not I'll do a beat poem tomorrow (laughs) yeah (laughs) um we'll do a rap session later and um yeah, I just, I, I loved it, but it wasn't until that last two years of uni where it kind of felt like there was a sense of purpose and it felt like, I mean, it sounds a bit wanky, but like just, I don't know, I could do this for a living. Yeah, yeah. It's not just a passion project. Yeah. And I think it was the same for falling into food because initially I was, you know, moving into the workforce and working for SBS and I applied for several media jobs before I got the one at SBS. I would either get to like the last interview or, and you know, the sticking point was always, oh, you don't have the experience yet. You're just out of here. Isn't uni. that annoying? It's, it's like the it's most. so frustrating because what you're asking someone is to take a chance on you to show like, you're asking someone to take a chance on you so that you can show them like what you can do. Right. And, um, and I think. They're going, well, we can't because you have nothing to show for it. Yeah. You know, you, we can't see on this piece of paper that you have anything that we can do. And it's like, how, how does, it's almost like this check, checkmate moment that they already hold over you or like yeah, a stalemate yeah, yeah, yeah. moment maybe is a better way of expressing it where you're both wanting the same thing, but neither one of you can get to that <laughs> next, next move. Yeah. And it is frustrating because I didn't think it would be that hard. I thought media, digital, there'll be loads of jobs. Yeah. Most of it was assistant work yeah. and I had gotten to the point where at first you know you go out and you start applying for work and you think oh that looks like a nice job I'll apply for that yeah then you get to a point where you're like okay I'm gonna start applying for everything <laughs> and then you're like hey is that located in Sydney great awesome is that full-time awesome you know and I'm in Newcastle I'll get there it's fine. <laughs> I'll get there. yeah I live in Victoria but if it's in Sydney count me in it'll do yeah it'll yeah. do and yeah I went for an interview and it was just it was a great starting point. I I didn't feel bad about doing it. I loved it. I was yeah. like, great, I'm going to make the best DVDs ever. And I'm going to be so on time. I'm going to be so diligent. <laughs> I'm going to show that, show everyone how good I am at this job. Like, uh, Ra- was it Ralph Fiennes and Red Dragon? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> I'm just going to be so great at it. But yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and then I think, yeah, from there it kind of, you know, propelled me into a different space at right. SBS. Yeah, because that's such an interesting avenue. Like, I, I keep thinking about the, the CC story and I just like, it made me laugh. I was telling my partner about it and I was just like, oh, it just makes me laugh all the time. Like, I think I think we need to clarify CCs as in not the chip, but actually <laughs> yeah. closed captioning. <laughs> yeah, I should have clarified. Sorry, guys. Already um, abbreviating. Yeah, yeah fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, like, but that's such an interesting avenue to get to. Obviously, when you started doing, you know, actually hard disk copies of shows. You didn't Mm. think that's kind of where you were going. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much career progression there is from making DVDs, you know, after that. You don't know what your next step is. And so, yeah, yeah, I I fell into sort of... So, after making DVDs, I was doing news and sport archiving for events. So, things like the World Cup and like for Eurovision feeds and just checking those feeds that we were getting, um, making sure that they were archived correctly and logged correctly so that editors could come in and edit from them for their packages. Right. Uh, And then that kind of got me into a bit more of a... I used to write the technical manuals for some of the breakdowns for the team. So I would do more technical writing to be like, hey, these these are the procedures of how to do what I'm doing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's really... It's quite... I mean, it sounds a bit boring, but it's really a great way to kind of clear your mind yeah. and go, this is what I do <laughs> in a very simple one pager. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then used to change like the backup on air tapes that we used to have as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so from there moved into TV production. So I worked in the commissioning team, God, maybe three, almost three years. So I worked as a production coordinator for documentaries, food and lifestyle, entertainment and drama. So that, what that was, was basically like a deliveries coordinator. So I used to be the point of call for the commissioning editor and the production company. So whenever they contracted a TV series, I would make sure that they were delivering everything to the broadcaster. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So all your, your stills, your video material, yeah, your press kit stuff, your promo reels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they kind of were held to account on their contracting side. And then I also would make sure that parts of the business, so marketing and publicity in particular, and also our audio language at the time, all had access to everything that we had internally. So it was yeah, kind of yeah. like this this random position, but a really important one because you, you're sort of dealing with productions and commissioning teams. You're also vetting pitches that come in yeah. as well. So people have, you know, grand ideas for TV series and whatnot and vetting those yeah, and yeah, yeah. kind of talking through the process. Um, yeah. And then from there, I took a bit of a sidestep into closed captioning, CCs. Um, CCs. CCs. <laughs> And that was, uh, I took on a secondment position originally just for a year, a maternity oh, cover. Oh, a secondment, oh, yeah. Right, right. So basically a 12 month cover, maternity cover. And I had no idea what to expect. <laughs> like I had seen closed captions on TV. And at the time, I remember thinking closed captions and subtitling, they're the same thing. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and they're not. Um, they're not at all. I mean, they are in terms of the visibility aspect. But not so much like, you know, closed captions are for the hearing impaired and they are timed in a particular fashion. Subtitling takes on a very similar approach, but it's just for um, covering in language content into English. Right. Whereas closed captioning is English to English, just in text form. And yeah, I basically my job was to go through all the TX the transmission schedules and see what the programs were coming up. And legally we're bound to sort of cover closed captioning on the main channel so this is when we just had one sbs channel right at the time and uh we sort of had to hit 90 to 95 percent closed caption program within prime time 
periods of that day. Oh, right. Okay. So um, it's a really important service. Uh, you know, a lot of our audience utilize that service um, and it's a government um, policy for us to kind of adhere to. So my job was to go through transmission schedules and make sure that everything was captioned. And if it wasn't, either we would do the captioning in-house or externally. Yeah, yeah. And then if we weren't and we were in, in breach, then we would have to explain why we didn't close caption something. That's crazy. Yeah. Is, is there like a, you know, closed caption police that just like monitor that I mean, all the time? there's not really or? a closed caption or, unit. It's not like a Wellington paranormal police who, situation. Yeah. <laughs> there's zombies around, no. Uh, is it just a bunch of people who are like trying to watch a show and they just report that there's no text and so they'll investigate? And then they investigate it. Right. And more often than not, it's, you know, it's a technical dropout. You know, they okay. or their TV set is isn't um compatible anymore like there's a lot of technical intricacies that people have to think about um sometimes it doesn't pick up the right audio you know you also have to think about it you know there's two kind of ways to close caption there's live captioning so when you see events that's like yeah yeah a ridiculous like maybe three to five seconds i don't know if it's changed now but three to five second delay so you literally it's pretty incredible it's it's pretty automated now but I remember meeting a few captioners who just had the most ridiculous typing speed. It's crazy. It's I was, I was crazy. Thinking that, I was thinking about and that the on accuracy. the way here. Yeah. I was thinking about that on the way here. And I was like, it, I wonder for stenographers whether that they do some sort of a degree or, or training session where it's just like, I don't know, like like Rubik's Cube people where they just like every day just like smash out a Rubik's Cube where the stenographers just do that on their time off just to practice to get faster. Like... How does that even happen? Like, Yeah, I just imagine dinner parties would be everyone just typing across yeah. the table and having like little competitions while I'm yeah, playing yeah. like Uno and everyone else like typing it out. You know? Erasing each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just like, man, that's crazy. Yeah, it's an inc- yeah I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. And the amount of work that goes into a closed caption program and also a subtitle program. Yeah, like you, yeah. Generally, the processes are quite similar. You're previewing a, a TV series or a movie. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you don't really get to choose what you watch. <laughs> Right? So it's like, hey, this this program or this, you know, film needs to get captioned or subtitled. Oh, you don't like horror? Well, that's what the remit is. It's kind of like being a um, uh, someone who does all the all the ratings, all the like the PGM, you know, the, the, cl- the oh, classification. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so the classification officers, you know, they have to sit there and watch everything that goes to air to classify it. That's, yeah. So it's pretty incredible. You, you know, you uncover, I mean, I watched, I remember watching, um, I remember subtitling like a Croatian film once. It was so bizarre. It was such a bizarre, like so many, you know, incredibly beautiful, but also random movies. Yeah. Um, TV series. So I did a bit of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I remember when what? that first. So yeah, when Brooklyn Nine-Nine first came to the channel, I used to like check the captions. I used to have to check, yeah, check yeah. them. I'd imagine it'd be hard for like comedy. Like it, it's, it'd be so different trying to watch comedy on, on like sub, or not subtitles, but like closed text if you've got like hearing impaired like there's one thing reading comedy and then like listening to it like it just changes everything like because mostly with comedy it's like how you tell the joke or something like that so it'd be like man like yeah and you've got you don't have the inflection exactly yeah you don't yeah, have yeah. that sarcastic undertone and more often than not you have to kind of almost do the audio description now which is what they've got in place so, oh like so it's just bracket sarcasm or yeah like yeah or they'll have like bracket hard rating fall to create ominous mood or something oh really yeah God, so it's be- it's, I mean, the audio description is also for people who can't see. So it's just to really paint a picture. It's at next level, you know, and I think it's a really hard one to convey, but it's such an important space to be yeah, in, yeah. you know, such an important You space. wouldn't have to do that for a live coverage, would you? 
No, not for a live coverage. That'd be a bit, bit, no. bit much. I mean, it'd be pretty full on. It'd be pretty full on. <laughs> but it, it is an automated process. And I'm sure, I actually would love to hear if anyone's had it has any captioning stories that they've read or heard about that were ridiculous because more often than not you see one word that trickles through or you know the amount of ways you can spell there and then yeah, like there yeah, comes yeah, up and yeah, you're like that's yeah. not yeah you know <laughs> like your inner grammar grammar kind you're of thing yeah, comes yeah, out yeah. and he's like ah that's you know? so funny yeah but i mean right. i remember when i start actually this is a bit of a funny story but when i started someone was like if you if you marry up the captions make sure that they're the right program and i was like what do you mean Oh, we had someone once who had married up. I think it was like a documentary prime time slot with the South Park episode. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, yeah, it was before my time, but it was a bit of a, I, I had never known who had done it, but I remember hearing that story and being like, like the, the programming time slots were very similar. Yeah, yeah. And it just got so many complaints. People were like, so I was funny. watching, you know, Northern Ireland and like this incredible scenery and I've got Cartman and Kenny over here like yelling Talking at me obscenities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, anyway. That's so good. Yeah, pretty good. I would love that. Yeah. But yeah, so I did that. I did that job for, I sort of, so this was like the beginning of my food introduction in that. I did that job for a year. Um, the woman that was on mat leave came back and we did a, like a job share, like a part-time. And then that's kind of when I decided that I wasn't going to take on another part-time job. What I was going to do is was I was going to look inward and think about the passion creative projects that everyone has that always, you know, come about in weird and wacky ways. Like yeah, this podcast. Like this podcast. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> yeah, and so I reached out to the food team and then a more sort of full-time job came up and then I bowed out of my CC days and I mean, that was a great time. I met incredible, incredible people, you know, like on staff language speakers. So, you know, Arabic, French, Japanese, Mandarin. I worked on If You Are The One, the Chinese dating show. (laughs) That's such a good show. That is such. (laughs) So I worked on the Australian special with um, my boss at the time, another incredible woman mentor of mine, Jing Han, who uh, is no longer at SBS, but worked at SBS for a very long time. She was doing, I mean, she was heading up the entire subtitling closed captioning unit, but also was actually doing the physical subtitling and editing for the show with um, somebody else. And there's so many episodes of that and it's such an intricate... Yeah, oh, so they voice over, do you mean? Yeah. Well, no, they don't voice it. They subtitle Oh, right, 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 right. So... Is that something SBS ever did was do voiceovers or not? Yeah. So we do re-narrations. Really? Was, yeah. Did you ever do that? No, but I... <laughs> should have guest starred as a character. I was like, I don't know if my voice... I mean, I might have a voice for re-narration. You can, you can, you can feedback if you think I do. But yeah, I... I um, we used to get particular series in and we used to want to localize the re-narration because it'd be very American-based or very British. I mean, British wasn't too much of a problem. It was probably more American. That was a bit more of a sticking point because there's just nuance in the language or expression that just wouldn't fly with a localized audience. Like people wouldn't understand terminology or the way – or there'd be a bit of a disconnect. Right. And sometimes they would edit the program down to kind of fit in with a different classification model. Sometimes a program comes in M and you're like, oh, we need to make it PG because it's fitting in a different time slot. Really? And so you'll cut it out? Yeah. Really? Yeah. There's that a lot seems of, pretty crazy. Yeah. And sometimes you only have 25 minutes to 
to work off, but the program is an hour. So now it becomes two 25-minute programs because you've got to factor in breaks. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, I didn't realize they would have actually just taken the like, initiative to cut out scenes and stuff from it. Yeah, I mean... It that all, seems pretty crazy, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. I mean, it depends what your rights are from a programming perspective. Right. It's not so much cutting out scenes from an editorial perspective. It's more a censorship, like looking at it from like a oh, we can't play nudity at this time. So you either don't play it until a later time slot or you kind of can slightly just jump jump cut to a different scene. Right. Like kind of skip over it. So yeah, there, yeah. there's a lot. I mean, it's the power of post, right? That's what you keep hearing, the power of post-production. <laughs> yeah, right. You can. Well, that's where the magic happens is what they say. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, being able to do that, I think, yeah, there's... If You Are The One was an incredible offering for SBS and... <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was so much fun. We had an Australian special that, um, yeah, Mong Fei came over for. And my, my job at the time was to put a call out uh, with one of the other cohorts, a really good friend of mine, um, put our call out for applications for the Australian version of If oh, You Are really? The One. Oh, yeah. really? An Australian, uh, If You Are The One. Yeah. <laughs> and we had to vet all these girls. That's so funny. And then meet them and do like a casting process. Wow. Which was phenomenal. And then Mong Fei had to meet them. And then they, yeah, basically did a shoot. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. It was such a weird little moment. I actually forgot about that just as I was I mean, saying it How many, well, so you did a season, like a full season? Yeah, so there was just one Australian special. Because, oh, just one. Oh, yeah, right, 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 right. And because If You Are The One as a brand is a very specific brand. Yeah, yeah. So, but because we had... I mean, we as an SBS had such an affiliation with the program and we're broadcasting and it was so popular and we just had people writing in feedback being like, we love this show so much. It's, it's so, so incredible. Funny. How can you not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like the power of dating shows, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I think we need to combine dating and food, food and we might have like some beautiful beast. But yeah, it was, um, it was a really fascinating time to be able to work on a show like that and meet these women who wanted to kind of put themselves out there on a... Yeah, like a predominantly Chinese dating show. Are any of those couples still together? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should do a little deep dive after this. Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. A know, reunion tour. A reunion tour. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? We held the... Um, oh, my God. We held the kind of call out... Uh, I mean, I don't want to say audition. It sounds a bit but uh, audition. And these girls came in these ball gowns and they were practicing their lines and like because they needed to kind of really answer like eloquently enough to be on this show. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you also had to speak either Mandarin, I mean, or or Cantonese, but Mandarin or Cantonese, you had to have. So majority of girls were like Australian Chinese. And there was a couple that were like Greek. I remember meeting this Greek woman and she was fluent in Chinese and she wanted to be on the show. Wow. And she was phenomenal. I was super, I wasn't, wasn't expecting that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was, yeah, it was really great. It was a really great casting process. Yeah. And I think, I think meeting the production from If You Are The One was a bit of a celebrity moment. Cause I was like, oh, we've been working on your show for so long and broadcasting it and you're here in the country. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Know? And yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, it was phenomenal. And then from there, you know, several months later, a more kind of full-time job had opened up in the food team. And yeah, like I said, I bowed out of my closed captioning, took my closed captioning hat off and put on my plate. And there was a sticking point that I had um, when I, so I obviously kind of went from deputy editor to editor and am now managing editor. And there was this moment I remember having early on being like, I love food and I love writing. And it's always been this creative side project of mine. Can I do this for a living? 
what happens if I don't like it as much as I do in my creative space? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because then I sort of will take a step back and go, oh, I don't think I have anything else to fall back on because that was my creative project and it yeah, didn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but I mean, I mean fortunately, it was, it was just the right energy and the right speed for me and I'm very grateful for it. And I think I, the one thing I'm probably most appreciative of is that I still get to tell stories and I still get to learn so much yeah. along the way. It's not about, you know, it's offering a platform and, you know, being an editor and a writer is incredible and just constantly learning and evolving and changing and thinking about the way of the world. I don't think that ever stops, nor should it, right? Yeah. Any creative job. Yeah. But what, so while you were doing the, um, you know, the CC closed captioning, mm. um, you were saying when you started, there was only one SBS channel. So mm-hmm. during your time there, it expanded. Obviously. Yeah, so SBS was just like one main channel. That was like the SBS that everyone yeah. knew, one one core channel. We moved into an SBS2 channel, which ultimately is now known as SBS Viceland. Mm. Um, and then we also um, incorporated the incredible NITV Indigenous channel as well oh, yeah. along yeah. the way. And then now we've got the SBS Food Channel 33, which is just 24-7 linear Food TV. The good stuff. The good stuff. <laughs> the tasty stuff. I'm going to get like an email from Viceland and NITV and main channel going, Farah, the best channel. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we've got, you know, four channels plus on demand as well. Yeah. So a lot of our programming goes on on demand after it's been to air, but we also have on demand only programming. With Viceland. <sighs> Here we so go. Is, is, so I, I follow a, a news thing called Vice. Yeah. Is that the same thing? No. Um, so... V- it is like Vice News um, is its news entity and we stream a lot of Viceland content as in the actual channel Viceland, but SBS Viceland purchases a lot of programs to feature on there. So the demogra- – like it's a very different offering. Right. I mean if you sat there for like an hour and just went through every channel, you would be able to see just like how different – I mean our main channel is our kind of commission creme de la creme, if you will, of priority content – um, from all suites and all genres. Viceland is that kind of younger, maybe even edgier sort of offering, um, some great late night viewing. <laughs> and then, you know, NITV is so important in terms of its indigenous space. I think it's, I loved when we kind of joined forces. It was an important, I think, message for all Australian audiences to hear, you know, the importance of, I mean, you know it all too well, the indig- indigenous message and, the importance of the, you know, the, the real custodians of our land always was, always will be Aboriginal land, you know, and it's something not to be forgotten, you know, and a good way to kind of showcase that for us is through food Yeah, and incredible chefs that feature on that channel. So we try to support that through food projects as well and some of our own video projects. And then we have our SBS food channel 33, 24, seven, which is our premium food channel. So a lot of our food commissions live on there. Yeah. Um, a lot of our big projects this year will run on there as well. And um, it's just creating a great food space. Yeah. I think it's nice that we have these channels on offer, you know, free to air, you know, just yeah. like our streaming service. Is free. I get, it kind of blows my mind. I pay for all these subscriptions, <laughs> you know, I have so many subscriptions, but I'm like, oh, I watch a lot of SBS on demand, but yeah, it's a good spot. It's a good yeah. Spot. yeah. So now we come full circle, right? <laughs> We've just done the whole the whole roundabout and where we're into food writing. Yeah. When you started that food writing, did you kind of, 
have this moment where you this was something that you said you kind of really you always wanted to do but didn't know you know what I mean like at the forefront of your mind you know you weren't leading through your jobs and career and life to do this but when you got there you're like oh wow like this is something that I've kind of been interested in but like you said didn't know if you could make it a full-time job so you just never pursued it that way is that kind of what it was when you you hit that that part of the road I've always loved people and I've always loved hearing their stories and it felt like such a natural fit to kind of be a writer as such because it was less about me writing my story about something it was more about me trying to respect and convey someone else's message that's so important I mean and when I say it's so important it's as easy as knowing about someone's, you know, um, technique around making naan bread, for example, and what they do at home. Like that for me is an important message. <laughs> you know, bread is an important <laughs> message. No, but I mean, it, it was a natural progression to be able to work with people. And ultimately, I got asked this the other week, what do you want to be known as? Like, you know, in this life. And I was like, a storyteller. <laughs> and they looked at me and I said, you said that with such conviction. And I was like, yeah, that's always what I've wanted to be is a storyteller. And it was a natural progression to writing. I think writing can be really, um, I mean, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide, you know. Um, with, <laughs> I mean, let's just take a moment to appreciate my cat jumping around. That's all that scratching noises. <laughs> it's hilarious. Ruby, Ruby's having a moment. Oh. Um, yeah, it was a natural progression um, to kind of, Go into writing, but it you are really vulnerable. Like it's a vulnerability that you're also showcasing, and you want to do justice to your subjects and your audience. And I've been really lucky to. Um, <laughs> she's still scratching. I've been really lucky to meet some incredible people and to tell their stories, and also to you know make people feel comfortable to share theirs with me because that's not always easy. Yeah, and that's something that. You know, I've learned more about even with my, my own family and my mother and my, you know, um, my aunts and uncles are all refugees and have their own incredible stories. And they open up to me more and more every time. And I think there's something about that in the way that people tell their stories. And it's more often than not, you go in there thinking, okay, I'm going to talk to you about your pastor. And then you walk away going, oh, what I loved is the story about your, your nonna, you know, yelling at you or or what or what I loved you know is is the fact that you make your curry paste not the way that I expected you to make it like they're the kind of little hook moments that I love to share and I think are really important you talked before about uh having this responsibility to cover other people's stories because that's what you're passionate about is wanting to tell other people's stories but have you ever been in the situation where how you tell the story or the way you've conveyed it isn't exactly what the person you're covering interpreted it to you do you know what I mean like we're talking Mm. about this on the journalist roundtable where they have this responsibility to provide the story to the best that they can do it or the best to their ability but sometimes the way the writer tells the story maybe isn't exactly the way the person intended it do you know what I mean so has that ever happened to you yeah um it has actually and I think what is that is a really common way because what you walk away with is being beautiful sometimes they think of as maybe boring or like not the interesting thing that they wanted you to focus on and vice versa. Sometimes you cover something and they're like, oh, that makes me sound really conceited, you know, or, oh, it makes me feel like seem really confident and I don't want to seem too confident. You know, they're the kind of things I've gotten before um, without sort of going into sort of deeper detail. But 
it's more often people go, oh, I don't like that quote. That makes me sound really terrible. Or like, and it, it's not that it makes them sound really ter- terrible. It's more the opposite. It's like a, a sense of power or strength or a point of difference. And sometimes they don't want to feel that different in that right. story. Um, I did have a piece once, which was a little bit more kind of uh, talking about, you know, n- n- using the whole animal and using different parts of the animal. And the focus was on like using eyeballs and using, using, yeah, just, just different parts of the animal. Let's, <laughs> let's just go with that. And I'm like talking to a vegan in front of me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please go forth. Um, yeah. And they, it was really interesting what was being done with this particular animal. And was this a Josh Nolan thing? Buddy? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But I mean, and it was just really interesting because people were like, Oh, you can't, you, you can't just show that. That's like so intense. I'm like, it's so resourceful and useful and an interesting way to look at the world. It's just like a different way of looking at the world. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's opinion and it's perception and also it's political. I think, you know, we've had this discussion before, you know, food, food is a beautiful, sacred, safe, traditional, fun, quirky, reverent space to be in. I mean, it's also political. It's also hard. It's also intertwined in government regulation. It's also intertwined in the environment. It's also intertwined in policy. It's also intertwined into cultural divide, also cultural unity. Like food is a pretty powerful tool and space. So I think, yeah, you couldn't work in food and it not still be a sticking point for people. You try to, I mean, as an editor, you try to, do as best you can to find that beautiful medium between, you know, editorial um, governance and also storytelling and do justice to the subject or the interviewee or interviewer as well. Yeah. You know, um, you know, you don't want to, my job as an editor isn't to go in and rework it all. I think the thing as a writer and an editor, you can always rewrite and you can always re-edit and you've got to find a happy medium. (laughs) You know, you've got to find a, a space where you're like, this is the story as it stands. And this yeah. is the beauty of that piece. Great. That's the hook line. It sounds thing. like those two roles can get really conflicting a lot of the yeah, times. Yeah, because more often than not, not every writer can be an editor. Not every editor wants to be a writer. Yeah. Like, you know, it's a it's a different, um, different space. I think I use writing more. I mean, I do love writing to the site, but I probably use it more probably personally now at home. And yeah. With writing my own recipes and... Um, yeah, right. Like just just writing food stories and collating information um, more more often than not. Whereas editing is, yeah, it's just a different hat, right? It's just a different hat, like in any other kind of just role. A different finger in the pie. Just a different finger in another hot pie. <laughs> <laughs> this is taking a vice land turn. Ah, <laughs> uh, nice plug. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's interesting because working on an, on a media platform, SBS is kind of known for being this relatively unbiased platform to showcase kind of, you know, interesting perspectives on certain topics. Yeah. Is there at any point where, whether, you, you know, you've noticed it happen in SBS or, or you've done it? I know you're on kind of SBS food, so not the whole broad thing, but when you want to tell a political story because it's time for something to be told no matter how 
graphic it is like you know not something as simple as just showing the whole animal but uh, one thing that came to mind which i thought was just crazy watching i remember being like 12 or 13 and watching sbs on like euthanasia for example yeah and there's a the video where you watch a guy who's terminally ill and you watch his kind of progression of going through the doctors and kind of you know the choices and what's what he wants to make and he gets to the end and he decides he wants to be euthanized and for a whole clip was that really powerful shot just watching it but it's for like the whole two minutes you just watch him sitting on this couch with his wife and he gets the injection and you just see him kind of fade away and, and die and like it could have look it could have been abc it could have been sbs um but the point is i was like sitting there thinking this is like really obviously sad but watching someone's journey coming to that decision because euthanasia is one of these hot topics that people don't know what to do or not to do regardless of the whole point of it but i just thought it was a really impactful way for media to show that this is why having that option for some people is really important and you don't really get it or you don't really understand unless you you watch somebody kind of go through it do you know what i mean so even with um big political things about uh, gay marriage, for example, mm. you know, how you showcase why gay marriage is important to those people is you tell those stories in a real personal format. So for the people who don't understand why it's important for them to want to get married, they understand. Is this something that you feel you're trying to do with is food or even just like not food related as well? Like there's certain stories that you see going around SBS that they want to kind of tell that for the modern age. Like, is this something that goes on? Like... Yeah, I mean, from an SBS food um, point of view, the stories that we kind of touch on that are probably more first-person based or presented by series um, covering people's stories, more often than not touch on things like displacement and touch on being a refugee and touch on migration stories and hardships and touch on the difficulties of finding jobs, um, maintaining jobs, maintaining an income, um, being able to support families, um, living and more kind of, you know, kind of a continuation of living below the poverty line and being homeless. Or we also cover things in the health space. So understanding deficiencies and not not just a, a fad, not just, you know, hey, I don't want to eat X because I don't feel like it today, but understanding the medical kind of repercussions of, you know, not eating gluten for some people and being actually celiac is quite an intense And treating process. it seriously in and, the kitchen. And treating it seriously in the kitchen because, mm. I, you know, I mean, I've even had revelation moments for my own health through stories that we've commissioned. You know, we had a, a woman who shared a story about having a B12 deficiency and she's not a vegetarian and she's heavily iron deficient and had for years had just no idea yeah, wow. why she was feeling so ill all the time and went underwent so much medical testing. And she wrote a first person piece about the importance of B12 wow. for her. And I actually went and got a B12 check after that. <laughs> and I actually had a B12 deficiency. Oh, really? Yeah. Shit. So there's these stories that kind of touch on, yes, food is a component, but it's people that have, you know, come from all walks of life, um, you know, be it... Uh, engineers or police officers who now want to be- open up sustainable whiskey farms and like who you know want to um go in and create like a social media platform celebrating refugee run businesses for people that have no idea on how to function like they would inverted commas normally in society you know there's some incredible stories 
the people like Lee Tran have covered off, like Welcome Merchant, for example, being one of them. Um, working with like the Refugee Council of Australia and Settlement Services as well on different stories where it's quite funny and it's something that my mum has said to me previously is when I ask her about food, she's like, why do you want to know about that? Like, it's just what I eat or what I cook. Like, that's just where it's really fascinating and really exciting for everybody else around us. But for them, it's like, I go in the kitchen and I cook this meal and it's, you know, it's what it is. And I think food is a beautiful way to tell that story and that's what we try to do. But of course, everyone has more, you know, more depth than just what they're serving up in their plate. And there's also reasons why they're cooking the dishes that they cook. Um, ingredients. We have an ingredient called plasma, which is basically like crushed up biscuit meal in Bosnia. It's a really popular staple throughout the Balkan region. It's used in like, I mean, you can use it on your cereal. You can have it with milk or it's, it's just like crushed up meal. And that was a wartime like that was a wartime staple. Things like plum jams and like pekmez, which is like just cooked down apples or cooked down plums, wartime staple. That is like, for me, really interesting as like an ingredient. For them, it's like, oh, that's what we live through to sustain sugar and carbohydrate content in our bodies. You know, there's, it's just the way that we're looking at food. More often than not, people are like, oh, that's really delicious. I want to know how to make it. They're like, hey, this came about because I left a country or I was, you know, living below the poverty line for five years or I had an eating disorder or, you know, there's so many interesting stories behind food that are often really difficult and for a lot of people find it really hard to believe, you know, someone like how could someone that worked in food also have an eating disorder, but you love food and you eat food and you cook food. How can, you know, or how can you um, talk about health in that space? You don't have a, a, a medical degree, but also you have your own experience. So I'm not saying, you know, science is so important. Absolutely. But everyone has their own stories along the way. And credible fact and data is definitely something that has to feature across, you know, our, our editorial slate. It's really important. But yeah, there's like, it'd be very narrow minded to think food is just about food and that, that, that story and that process. And seeing someone's journey and then coming to the end of that is, yeah, is, is pretty incredible. You know, sharing, being able to only eat one dish between five children because that's all you could afford. You know, there's a history component to it that's really important. Yeah. And I think I've been, you know, one of the most important things that have been highlighted lately, even just talking to with the Journalist Roundtable and, and Lee Tran, like a lot of how much people who are refugees over here in food is become married and, and, and sharing the story of refugees through food and stuff like that because that's such a big issue that's going on in Australia right now, which is obviously having Christmas on and being detained, which is just terrible. Just kind of trying to highlight that, you know, I suppose the fact that it has to be done but almost humanize, you know, the people and they're not just, you know, detainees, like, you know, what the, like, what the fuck's going on? Like, they need better rights than what they've got. And, and highlighting that story through food is one of the ways in which it's kind of being done, you know, like the more it's talked about, hopefully these issues will be maybe solved. I don't know. Like, well, I think it's about being seen. You want to be yeah. seen and heard. And I think that's what the platform is really about, yeah. you know, amplifying those voices and those faces and those peoples and those stories, you know, more often than not, you'll go to an event and then someone will come out and be like, Oh, you know, I, you know, came from Sri Lanka like 12 years ago and I didn't know any English. And, and then you kind of go, oh my gosh, you have this whole story. I've just been sitting here eating your food mm. and I had no idea about, you know, about who you are. And that's the importance or like understanding, you know, um, 
that you can use jackfruit as a meat substitute and it be incredible, but that's actually a really popular you know, it's Sri Lankan stuff. It's yeah. been happening for years. <laughs> yeah, Do you know yeah, what I yeah. mean? This is, not a, this is not a revelation. That's not a trend, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that these sort of techniques have been happening. It's just about, you know, bringing that to the attention of the people around us and having conversations around food, over food, about food, yeah. through food. Yeah. You know, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that the platform can do that. I mean, there's so many incredible news publications and food spaces in Australia, and we're very lucky that we can tell stories in such a, you know, great way with an abundance of writers that are on hand. Yeah. Especially like the journalist roundtable, like you were saying, that would have been really, um, that would have been really great to kind of hone in because there's all these misconceptions around food and journalism, I think as well. And yeah, this like, there's like this glory aspect of being, being like, don't you just sit there and eat food all day and then, you know, ride the wave, the yeah. proverbial creative wave. And you're like, no, there's like, a, there's still admin and there's still hustling to get stories and hard deadlines and long nights. Yeah. You definitely hear about it when it comes out, which will be in like a month now. Yeah. It'll okay. be in a month. Um, yeah. It's so funny. Like it was really insightful for me, you know, like, cause they, Yvonne kept asking me, kind of throwing me questions as well, because if I'm not a journalist, I'm a chef. So she was like, well, what do you think about the conceptions of, you know, what do you think of food and journalists and, and media and yeah. stuff do? And I was like, fair enough. Like, because obviously I sub- submitted fan questions, which is, you know, thank God to you, you know, <laughs> K came in supplying. Um, yeah. So, and that was really, really good, you know, and I'm glad that I did that because there are, like I said, there are a lot of conceptions about it and there were some really interesting questions and, and they were happy to kind of, clear the air of what it's like being a you know media and food journalist and stuff like that and the difference of being a food critic and yeah and you know like and, and like you know restaurant ratings and hats yeah. and all that sort of stuff and like, i'm glad i had nick jordan there you know who wrote that piece for counter you know so yeah. that was a good that was a really good discussion for like a good half an hour about it you know just everything to do with it so yeah it was really really good what, um what do you um I guess thinking about it from a chef's perspective and like digital publications and food tv like, what's your engagement with it? Like, how often do you engage in reading food media and um, watching food media? Is it something that you, like, live and breathe because you're a chef? Yeah. Uh, well, like, food media in terms of just, like, chefs and food being represented, not just, like, because yeah. there's a big difference between yeah. reading food critics. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do. Like, that's that's what I love doing. But I've been really, like, I don't really read too much of Gourmet Traveler or Good Food and so forth. Like. Yeah. I don't think they necessarily represent the kind of food or the chefs that I'm interested in. So, you know, for them, they're selling to the general public, right? So, they want to sell stories that the general public, not yeah. really to chefs. Like, I don't yeah. think they appeal necessarily. Like, not that they don't have inspiration for a chef to flick through for five seconds and be like, oh, that's kind of a cool way to play it or that's a really interesting flavor and so forth. But I like reading about the stories and so forth. For recipes, I'll always buy cooks written by a chef sort of thing. So, mm. if that's technically categorized as food media then sure yeah. um you know there's some really Only great chefs generally chefs yeah i mean generally chefs like obviously I'm not, gonna not hand all you of them. some books that aren't by chefs that are phenomenal <laughs> oh yeah, yeah yeah like don't don't get me wrong like don't get me wrong like not yeah obviously not all chefs you know in terms of inspiration for flavors and mm. and stuff like that then you don't buy books from chefs you're buying from culture yeah you know the people from the culture it's just for for me for example like one of the hardest things for me to, to search and buy is a vegan fine dining book is somebody applying traditional like French techniques but to vegetables for example because you can't just use butter and eggs and flour all the time you know so you have to there's 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 next to none if not half a dozen maybe I can 
buy that are... are aquafaba carrots. Yeah, aquafaba <laughs> carrots. Yeah, yeah. The, the, that are like, because we're a fine dining restaurant, so we can't just use, you know, stew things or make stocks. Like you, mm. you have to apply a lot of traditional techniques, you know, for, a, you know, a two-headed or three-headed restaurant to this food. Do you know what I mean? So it's not just a stir fry. It's not just these like really, you know, traditional culture way of cooking food. It's refined. Do you know what I mean? So the style of food there, you know, it's not that the way you cook an eggplant or the way you cook carrot, like that's the same. But in terms of making, you know, uh, let's just say we make a passion fruit glass, for example, Mm. um, no one really does that. Do you know what I mean? Like it's techniques you only use in a kitchen. So trying to learn how to make, you know, for example, like everyone knows how to make a vegan meringue now, you know, but for a long time, it wasn't really the case thing learning to make we for example a recent product that just came out was flora and that i don't know if you've heard about it yeah the plant-based um cream yeah 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 like you know before that like there's no what there's no cream that exists where you can just hand whisk something to the point to its peaks it's like plant-based butter now yeah you exactly know? yeah it's, yeah it's crazy because my i mean i am lactose but i sort of uh take i take the tablets yeah and more often than not, I will use the plant-based butter. And I've been trying to get my mother to use plant-based butter in anything that she cooks. She makes this one birthday cake for me every year. She's done so for 30-odd years. <laughs> and it always has, like, cream. And it's a beautiful tort. And it's, yeah, like, it's yeah, buttery. Yeah. It's, like, you know, <laughs> And I'm, like, wedging this, like, little bit of plant-based butter on the counter, like, pushing it over to her, being like, how about this? for the Anyway, so she did it last year for the first time. And she was a bit skeptical about it working and it actually worked. Yeah, yeah, And she yeah. was amazed. <laughs> she couldn't believe that plant-based could be a butter. She's like, but it didn't come from a cow. I'm so confused. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, know? but it's the same thing. So, yeah, for me, like trying to refer back to the question again in terms of how much I read it. But for stories, aside from food, I, I've been really enjoying Counter Magazine more recently just because they, they seem to talk about a lot of the tough issues and, mm. and, and talk about them in a real honest way. Where I don't think you really get that in in other hospitality magazines, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, not that there aren't any, but just not very many. Like Counter Magazine's very like, for example, when I read Nick Jordan's Long Live Restaurant reviews, I'm like, yeah. no one publishes this. Like that seems like an attack. Do you know what I mean? Like on a, on a massive institution of you know food criticism. Like that's it's been I think, huge. Yeah, I think there's there has to be. I mean, it's the point of opinion pieces and you're going to, well, yeah. you know, you're going to ruffle some feathers, feathers and, yeah. and sometimes it's about, you know, being, being open and clear and trying to present the facts as they sort of stand for you, but also having a weigh in and sometimes their weigh in isn't popular comment as well. You know, there's a really great, you know, like I've read some really great pieces recently that kind of touch on really difficult subjects around, you know, the naming of a restaurant and yeah, Yvonne, Yvonne yeah, Lamb. that was Yvonne very good. Lamb's piece. And it was interesting to see people's commentary around it, you know. I think as a journalist, you want to try and present the facts. You have comments in there from chefs and businesses. And and I think, you know, the really important point around it's not about what sort of has been done in the past. It's more about, okay, this is the recognition now and this is a moment of like this could be changed and this yeah. is just acknowledging the fact, Yeah. you know, rather than putting our barriers up immediately yeah. and trying to fight fire with fire so to yeah. speak it's about oh yeah maybe that doesn't actually represent who we are and maybe that does offend people and yeah. you know looking a little bit more inward yeah I, I remember one of the people they talked to was like the lobo for example and how they removed plantations so it's just the lobo yeah and i was like that's yeah very interesting because he was saying jared was saying was kind of in the high of the whole black lives matter 
and all that. And so he kind of took that, like you said, like a bit of a retro, not retrospective, introspective, introspective yeah. uh, look and was like, maybe this is going to like an issue to people that I didn't like think about or realize. And when we first bought the business, it was kind of representing a different story. And now it's a bit more impactful than we realized. So he's like, you know, it doesn't really affect the business. So may as well just take it off. Like, but that's it. I think it's, it, you know, goes to that sort of mantra of the evolution of food is something that's still kind of always going to be growing and it's going to be this beautiful beast that happens and we're not going to always get it right. And there are going to be times when we don't understand things. Yeah. And it's that willingness to understand and be open and be introspective and listen. Yeah. You know, and if you want to, you know, what you do with it from that moment is is your own prerogative as a reader. Yeah. You know, but there's, um, as I, I can I can understand that from like a journalist or a platform's position, you know, these are important stories. You, you know, if... Like there are going to be things that don't agree with people. You know, there are going to be things that, you know, for example, people don't see that there's a refugee issue in, in this country. You know, there are going to be people that don't understand why migrants need support. And I use that example and I come back to that example a lot because that's a lot what we kind of cover. I mean, we cover a range of things, but, you know, that's something that's also very close to me being a really personal discussion. Yeah, that's what's close to me. And having the opportunity and the support and the understanding and the language, yeah, you know, um, is something that, you know, we try to kind of propagate on our side and share, but yeah, you're going to, you're going to hit the mark and you're going to ruffle a few feathers by, you know, sharing, sharing things that people might not want to hear yeah, and might not understand and not just not understand, but aren't willing to understand yeah, and don't have that connectivity. So if those around you are like echo chambers and you don't have that external source to kind of, I don't know, have a bit of critical thinking about the situation at hand, then that can be really hard. So that's kind of why we do what we do, you know, amplify the and, and, and celebrate our audiences. But also, like, I'm going to keep striving to change popular opinion and, <laughs> and or like, you know change the minorities of this world even though they're so small sometimes yeah. you know it you know it just takes one harsh kind of comment sometimes to really bring you down and go god do people still think like this yeah people can still be racist and people can still be homophobic and ageist and sexist and the oh, list this goes is, on this is yeah, yeah the list goes on and this is the world we live in and this is i know this is just one reason why i do what i do it's just changing perceptions you know along the way and it, yeah, I think more often than not, like English wasn't my first language. I couldn't speak English till I was five. I grew up speaking only Bosnian and even though I was born here. And for a lot of people, that's like, but what do you mean? Like you speak English really well. Of course you're, you're English speaking. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, but by the actual definition, I'm not. I didn't learn a word. My mom couldn't speak to me in English. So therefore I didn't learn the language. And I started school Basically like that, my mom took me to school and said, she can't speak any English, so you need to teach her. Yeah. And to work in a role where I'm editing and writing and, you know, sharing the English language is pretty, like, I feel super humble, but like to be able to do that because it's a, it's something that's close to me and my family, you know, my family brush it off and go, oh, you write about food, the things that we do all the time, but. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I, I guess I'll invite all of our audience to your house for a dinner party then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that'll be the only way. I was like, okay, I guess I'll call them now. But yeah, I, 
you know, there's always going to be sticky points and things that are personal as well. And that really hit home. And you've got to also, like you said, with the striking a balance between the interviewee and a story and the right kind of editorial eye over it. There's also a balance in how you receive commentary and criticisms and read comments on a social media post and what you choose to take in and how you choose to take it. And yeah, sometimes you do read them. Like I read everything that we have on the site because that's kind of my remit and I like to kind of get into my headspace there like that. But I mean, yeah, I have friends who are writers who are like, oh, I never read the comments when my story goes up. Really? Yeah. They're like, I just, yeah, they need to just take a step back. And- wow. It's like actors who don't ever watch like, uh, not their movie, but like don't ever watch or see the, you know, the reviews they the get reviews. from. reviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just like. <laughs> this is going to be like me not listening to this episode because I don't want to hear my own voice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I think there's always, yeah, like I said, a sticking point. Yeah. You, people confuse food being this positive, fun, delicious, scrumptious thing with, oh, but you can't also be yeah. harsh. You can't, I mean, yeah, you can. It is. It's mm. the nature of our world. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick, just uh, over the NITV, mm. for people who have a story, who want to share a story, who might think it's tough or complicated to kind of do that through SBS. Mm. Is it a lot easier than, than people or than you think for people to want to share their story and kind of come forward and, and contact SBS? Yeah, I mean, we're, we've got an, we have an official sort of how to pitch to us and what kind of stories we're interested in and what our remit is more right. official on the website. Um, we have like a pitching link. Uh, I mean, I'm also happy to share my direct email address with you and you can share it with um, your audience if, yeah. if they want to reach out to me um, more specifically. I get people reach out to me on social media, on LinkedIn, I think, I think um, it's really incredible because more often than not, people have food stories. They just don't think they're good enough to kind of be put onto a publication. And sometimes, you know, it requires a bit of, you know, massaging and handholding. And sometimes, you know, people realize, oh, I don't actually want to be in that space, but that was a good kind of moment for me to kind of share my, my story, but it's not something that I want to do as a writer, right. per se. And other times people go, I never thought this could be a food story and it is. And this is great. I mean, the incredible Some Kind of Press with Lee Tran anthology on the new voices on food um, was an incredible project and something that we kind of wanted to amplify on the website as well and did so and, you know, found some incredible writers along the way that have stories to share. I think it is, it is easy to contact someone. I think, you know, you just want to feel appreciated and sometimes these stories can be really hard for you to tell and sometimes you don't know how to tell them you're like they're in my head and it's just nurturing that relationship so I like to say yes it is easy um I think we're a really approachable team at SBS you know across all the channels um and also across digital and uh, you know I love hearing about people's stories and sometimes they're the right fit and sometimes they're not quite right for our audience but I'm happy to offer feedback and support in that space yeah you know, I think just because it's not for our publication or it's not the right timing or the right fit doesn't mean it's not valid, you know. And I think it's hard, you know, you learn some lessons pretty quickly about, you know, any criticisms you receive. You know, you think, <laughs> oh, my God, I'm not good enough. But you've just got to kind of keep perpetuating that story and practicing and putting in the work. Yeah. If you're prepared to put in the work like you would any writing sort of gig, um, any editing gig, any content creating gig, then then it could be the space for you. Yeah. 
you should know. Yeah. One of the questions that you submitted to the uh, Roots Roundtable for the journalists. Oh, I knew this would come back to haunt me. <laughs> well, I was like, that's a, such a interest, like specific question that surely you'd only ask if you had a story. So the question you submitted was, what is a story that has stuck with you and why? Mm, I wow. feel like there'd be... Stories? <laughs> stories. Well, if there's two that pop to your head or, you know, or one main one and two extras... Oh, I think, I mean, there's so many stories. It's like, how long is a piece of string? Um, <laughs> literally, if anyone knows the answer to that question, please let me know. Uh, it's, I mean, we, we cover so much uh, from like easy biscuits and 12 minutes to, you know, vegan lasagna to, you know, opening up community gardens in the rooftop. There's so many incredible stories. I can't sort of put my finger on one. Um, a story that, I sort of covered that is close to me would be the story of with um, Nora Ziza. We did a, I like recorded a video package with her as part of refugee week last year. And she's a Rohingya um, refugee. Uh, she came to the country at the age of eight um, with literally a jumper. Uh, she was basically a stateless person before she came to Australia. She went through Malaysia first, I believe, and then came to Australia with her brother. And in that typical kind of story, I mean, she's she works for the Refugee Council of Australia. She's an English teacher. She also works for UNHCR. She's an ambassador. Um, she's a cook. She is an incredibly warm and talented person. And I actually filmed with her, it was about halfway through lockdown, I think, yeah, it would have been in June last year. And we did this social distancing thing where she said, you can come to my house, but it's got to be social distance. And I was, we just set up a camera and then I filmed her story. And we just sat down to the meal at the end and we're just chatting. And it was probably one of the best moments I think I had in in the last probably year in terms of just the richness of someone's story, but the positivity and the appreciation and just, you know, when you just look at somebody and you go, oh, you just have so many ideas in your head about what your life is and you're so going to achieve them. Mm. Like you are so going to perpetuate that. And her story working with Refugee Council was phenomenal because they released a book last year, which they're hopefully going to do in more of a hard copy fashion this year. I mean, COVID threw a lot of spanners and a lot of production works last year. But yeah, her story was something that really resonated with me made me think about my cousins who were refugees who had nothing who lived in camps like there was a real like moment personal moment emotional moment that I had there that I yeah um it was a very stop sit and listen to someone's story yeah and that would probably be one but I mean like I said I will just send you the website and highlight all the stories that we have I I bet there would be a lot of these moments where you've got a story to tell that can be quite personally like difficult. Do you know what I mean? Like, if it's so emotional, do you know what I mean? But you want to tell it right, it can be quite difficult to even just working on the story. Yeah, working on the story and more often than not, people will brush over the things they don't think are important. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've done that before, in, in especially in filming. People go, okay, well, I'm going to talk about this. And then they're going to do something that's like either off camera or brush over a topic and you're like, hang on, what, what is that? What are you doing there? <laughs> Stop, you know? And that, that's kind of the, the interesting moment or they'll, you know, brush over. Like one of the things I really re- remember, for example, with Noor was 
she was like, oh, it was so hot when we came, but I had a jumper in my hand. It was so weird when we arrived. But I remember thinking, God, we're in a really beautiful country and it's really warm. And I was like, that, like, that really stuck with me, that mm. moment. You know, I could really imagine that moment. And it was, yeah, it was bizarre. Or, you know, um, cooking like uh, a baklava segment, for example, and then the sugar syrup. And then like, there's like a clove, this in, like clove kind of um, salt that's being used in the, in, the, in the syrup. And that kind of being like turned away from the camera to be, to be done. And I was like, what are you doing with that syrup? Like, like they're kind of moments because more often than not, especially with the video medium, people have this idea about what they're going to show. And when, you know, they're like, oh, I've already prepared all of this. And you're like, don't prepare it. I want you to, I want you to cook it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also comfortability. Some people have come from, you know, not very open spaces. They don't, uh, they don't think, or, you know, have firsthand knowledge of women not having a power or a platform in particular. You know, they can't talk about having a career or talking about money or talking about power or, you know, progression. Like, they don't want to be persecuted in their own country if they go back. They don't want to say something out of turn. Yeah. You know, and more often than not, their media association is negative because the media in their own respective countries doesn't look after its people. They have sticking points with their own space. Yeah. So it's really, it can be hard to do that. We, when we ran some interviews, everyone, you know, for Refugee Week, a lot of them had a lot of questions around where this was going to go and how long would it be and would they get to see it first? Like they were all, and I understand you, I mean, it's a lot of like, yeah, it can be extra work, but you want, these are, these aren't my stories. You know, I want to respect that and want them to feel comfortable. You know, we're, we're not out on a mission to tell stories that make people unhappy, but we're also about telling real stories. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's not sugar, yeah, it's mm. important. Like you said, it's the things that you connect with. Yeah. You know, it's the things that I connect with, you know, the, the, the intricacies of human life are yeah. so important and so valued more so than I think we sometimes think. Yeah. Well, I've got one more question to finish this up. Okay. We're almost there. Uh, but before I get there, are there any questions that you want to ask or is there anything on your head that while we're here, you might think would be an interesting opportunity to, to talk about from your perspective? Yeah, I think a question that I had, um, I mean, I had a lot of questions, but I know like we can only run a five-hour podcast episode <laughs> once. Um, we, we do I, two parts. Yeah. I'm going to rival Lee Tran for a second part. <laughs> Sorry, Lee Tran. <laughs> Um, no, I wanted to ask what has been your key learning through doing this podcast? I know that you, it kind of started off as a bit of a whim interested kind of piece for you to kind of learn more about the industry and not even just the industry, but just other people's stories that work in food more generally. Um, but yeah, what has been something that you've really gone, oh, that was an aha moment or was there an episode or a particular moment that you had where you went, I never thought about it like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Like in that because that's the whole point for me to talk to people from different fields of hospitality that like uh, chefs, photographers, and journalists and farmers. Like, there's a lot that you don't understand when it comes to how they're represented or their role and how they essentially working with the kitchen. Do you know what I mean? So, like, there's a lot that I relatively understood before doing the podcast of you know how um, 
understanding you need to be of farmers and what they have to do when and when things aren't in supply they're aren't in supply you know as much as chefs will get pissed off and say well you know expect it to you know always be there like a tomato at Woolworths like you know when you're working with seasonality yeah exactly <laughs> seasonality you know so like I, I always understood early on that that's not the case so I'm not it's not like a shocking moment for me I think media representation was one thing that was really interesting for me um you know, talking with Lee Tran and realizing that food media was more than just food critics or food criticism. Like, because from a chef, that's that's really all we talk about. It's not food stories from on SBS or, or, or Gourmet. Like, it is just like food critics and, and hats and, and stuff like that. It's just like 80% of or 90% of what we talk about when it comes to food media. So, talking to her and realizing there's more to how restaurants are represented more than just hats and and. and wine glasses and so forth i think that was a moment for me for you know appreciating restaurants from a different perspective and though i know that there's more to a plate of food than just what's on the plate you know like and and talking to ceramicists like malcolm and and more than just the food there's the plate you know um so that was interesting for me um and i think second of all even appreciating the fact on on a more of a level that there's more value on on what the plate is that that chef is representing on a more personal level. Like mm. I, I always knew that for me, like I had this introspective moment and re- retrospective where there was one dish that I did recently. I cook a lot at home, like just like fancy dishes or whatever, um, just to learn techniques and stuff. And, and, and I looked at this dish and was like, fuck, like there's so many techniques on this one dish that I learned at so many different restaurants I was at. And I had this moment where I was just remembering my time at all these different restaurants and what it was like and the journey. And it's like, wow, like without thinking about it, this dish wouldn't be how it is without the journey of being a chef. And I'd thought about that for myself, but realizing that that's the same for every plate that you eat for somebody else. Like when they put up a dish, uh, for example, uh, Hearts Yard have a, it was just, there's like a black garlic and pork dish that they had at Hearts Yard. And, and when I looked at it before I, I spoke to him, I was like, that's so automata, how he, how he did that dish, you know? Like, but, and then I found out that he worked at automata, you know? And I was like, oh, that's so funny. Like, and that it's was just, your connective tissue. That, that was my connective tissue going like, wow, I could totally see your journey on this plate and, and, and his techniques. And, and, and that would be the same for, you know, when you go not just at fine dining, but all restaurants, of, whether it be people who have a refugee story and it's like, but also community, like just general communities, like indigenous communities. Exactly. You know, 65,000 years of indigenous knowledge and it's like, you know, in these beautiful you know, yeah. mobs and, and, and they're cooking it up and you see their story right there. Yeah. You know, not, not in a restaurant setting as well. Yeah, and, and that was definitely something that just like expanded in my head more than just myself and going, my food has a journey. Look at this plate and all these techniques that I have. It's like every single plate has that story and yeah. you don't realize that until... You talk to a food, someone who works in food media, you don't realize that too. You talk to chefs and be like, wow, that plate that they just put up recently on their menu was a culmination of that journey and, and the way that that person tells the story with you and having this passion for diverse s- storytelling and culture is because of your journey. Like mm. that's the probably the main thing that the, this podcast has done for me in a really, it, it makes you shut up for a minute. It does, like it does, you know, like it makes you shut up and just, and listen and go, wow, like, that's an incredible story, you know, and everyone has those stories. And, you know, like you said, it, it can really change depending on how someone wants to say it, but everyone's got 
an incredible story, you know, like, and I think that's probably the main thing. It's, yeah, because that that's culminating learning from food media chefs. I think if that if that goes by anything, that would be the main thing of what I learned. You know, like yeah, everyone has an incredible food story. You just got to ask the question. Exactly. Yeah, you just exactly like you say. It's like oh, don't, don't put that syrup behind the thing. What are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> that's the question. You that's know? the and question. You go, that's the moment. That's the moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's definitely the main thing. So I think it's interesting. Yeah, great. I love that was that a good answer. question. Good answer thank you <laughs> all right i'm gonna finish on something okay. uh, fun now one thing we always talk about in the kitchen right when, mm-hmm. when we banter and talk shit a lot is after a busy service um we we often talk about all the times we're in the shit sometimes we just talk about when we're in the shit we're like fuck i'm in the shit guys fuck you know like and i like asking these questions to different chefs and and Aww. people because i think it's a really modest way to reflect and go wow that was a really hilarious time that I put myself in the shit. What the fuck? Like, but I learned a lot from that scenario, but it was a time where it was just like, how on earth did I get myself in this position? And every time I do a one-on-one interview this, this season, I've been asking that to somebody. So I'm going to share a story from big Sam young. Okay. Uh, he told me a time he was in the shit. So I'm passing this on to you <laughs> and you can think about a time you're in the shit as a food media, CC captainist, whatever yep. you, you know, if the South park was really you, you just yep. didn't want to admit it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right, so Big Sam Young, he said he didn't tell anyone this story because he did really want to tell the story, but he's like, fuck it, I'll tell it. He was doing a function uh, at, uh, I think it was State Theatre. No, Enmore. He was doing a private dinner at Enmore and it was like a degustation. The man for, you know, truffles and caviar, right? And he was cooking, sent out the first dish, right? It was just nice sashimi, just a nice kind of starter dish. And he turned to the guy he was working with who was, you know, helping him cook. And was like, okay, now next dish, we need to get the pasta ready. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And the guy turned to him and says, what, what pasta? What do you mean? And Sam Young's like, that's the next dish on the menu. They're getting pasta. And he's like, I don't bring any pasta. And Sam Young was like, fuck, we didn't bring any pasta, right? He's like, what, like fresh pasta they made, right? Like all this effort to make fresh pasta. And he's like, fuck this. He's like, they all know they're getting pasta. So he's like, I can't just go to like Fratelli and just... Ask for as much pasta as they've got. Can I get to just- 40 kilos of pasta, please? <laughs> for this function. And uh, he did the regrettable thing and went and bought packet pasta for this function, which is like, obviously, a big no-no to like passionate chefs. But he was like, I, I, I have no other fucking choice. Like, I'm just going to make it happen. My hands are tied. Yeah, either, his hands are tied. Yeah, yeah, store-bought or nothing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, he said he just went and bought like shit tons of packet pasta and just used all these other mise en place to just like whip up something Zhuzh and send it, it out. Yeah, yeah. And it was like... It was pretty bad. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's a good. That's a good shit story. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Like, like imagine it. that. It's like middle service have to run around to the shops to get as much pasta as you can. That's good pasta, you know, not just like you know home brand Woolies, like something that's like nice. So yeah. And did like, anyone make any comments? Did he say? He, he 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 was under the impression no one really noticed the difference. So you know. Yeah. But yeah, I just thought placebo. It's the placebo. Yeah, exactly. Moment. Yeah, it's, oh, it's Big Sam Young. <laughs> yeah, truffles. You probably just extra truffles just to make up for it. Yeah, yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Anyway, that's my story to you. So if you've got something you want to end with, um, the one that comes to mind is actually when I, I mean, I don't. Only the person that was with me knows this story. I think. Um, yeah. And <laughs> I'm like, hang on. Well, how much? Okay. So when we did our if you are the one call out, um, I was in charge of setting up the the room itself and welcoming all the guests. So we had about 40 girls coming in that day. Obviously, like I said, in big ball gowns and all done up and with their families. And we had set up this room in the harbour. Um, it was like above 
the passenger terminal, I think it was. It was like a beautiful view of the of the Harbour Bridge. It was like a very iconic moment because Mong Fei was going to come in with his staff and it was all just, you know. <gasps> and we had this big projection up there that we, we were going to play an episode while they were all waiting, you know, just to kind of get everyone in the kind of relaxed mood and feel. And I um, – we had it um, set up in USB. I don't know if you guys know what USBs are, but they're like these. <laughs> no, um, USBs. And, um, I, thought you meant, I thought you were talking about floppy disks. Yeah, uh, oh, floppy disks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we had dial-up. No, um, <laughs> and then carrier pigeon. Um, no. And then we um, went to go and set it up through the USB port, and the USB ports were broken in that room. So it was like this really like terrible silence in there. And I was like, look, I've got my work laptop. I'm just going to plug it in. We can play it through my laptop. Through the big screen. Yeah, yeah. Right. Easy done. So I do that. And at this point, there's a guest downstairs coming in. Um, so Mong Fei has just arrived. There's two of his like production assistants coming up and there's one that's downstairs. So I've got to go and pick her up and come bring her up. <laughs> so I, I, I plug the laptop in. The episode's playing all fine. I leave the room. I go downstairs. I've been down there maybe five or so minutes. And then I come back up and my friends just literally like, run towards me the screen's off she's run towards me she's gone you need to remove your laptop off the big screen and I said why she goes well turns out your laptop when it hasn't been used for a minute it plays a series of photos that are saved onto your personal laptop as a screensaver rollout (laughs) which I knew but I just forgot because I thought oh yeah I'll just plug my laptop in this will be an easy tech moment yeah yeah I was like, what happened? She's like, yeah, there's a few photos of you in Thailand having a holiday. Um, some really interesting photos of me having like tequila shots and tequila sunrises <laughs> lying on the bar. Like literally me. Like I'm in this corporate attire, like being extremely professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, my 20, you know, 12 holiday montage is happening. <laughs> personal montage is happening in the background of a waiting room of 40 extremely nervous single women for a <laughs> casting show yeah needless to say i took that laptop and did not come back into the room for about 10 minutes because i could not i was just thinking if that if mong fei and the production had just seen me having tequila sunrise shots on the big screen how embarrassing anyway live another day that's probably it i don't think i've ever told anyone i think maybe my ex-partner knows that story that's so funny it's pretty bad <laughs> He's probably thinking, is she casting calling herself? Yeah. But my friend looks at me and was like, you just need whatever you need to do. You yeah. need to get that laptop and move it out. And That's I thought, so funny. I, I, and I remember asking her what photos. She's like, yeah, there's some of you like in Thailand having shots like on a bar. And I'm like, oh, I know the ones. Okay. And we go. Yeah. It was, oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. I mean, goes to show, don't plug in your personal laptop in a work environment ever i'm sure that would have made everyone more more relaxed now everyone you know? was like is she gonna be one of the contestants because she looks like she's ready to go we have a lot to live up to yeah exactly <laughs> i feel really relaxed shots anyway <laughs> yeah, exactly. oh bless that's pretty funny there you go i mean that's a that's a vault to the grave <laughs> moment holy moly holy moly this may come back to haunt me one day oh <laughs> uh, everyone will love it don't worry everyone will love it great you have strangers come up to me and be like oh my god that was such a great are story. you the tequila girl and i'm like oh my god should i get a tequila contract after this? <laughs> yeah pretty much pretty oh much. very good all right well that's me done uh i Elijah, hope you enjoyed thank yourself. you so much i mean that was phenomenal thank you for letting me blab on about <laughs> me myself and i and sbs and the brands i love and yeah thanks for having me on well it's not often i was saying this to lee tran and even me for rigby but it's like not often they get to share their story you know like that's their job of sharing other people's stories so it's quite 
it's quite a fun moment when you get them on the mic and go, tell us your story. And they're like, oh. The, uh. <laughs> yeah, but you know what's really funny? I'm always like, everyone has a really important story to tell. And then today I was like, why does anyone want to hear what my story is? I don't have a story. You know, yeah. like the irony of, of being able to share who you are a little bit. That's so funny. Yeah, I love it. All anyway. right, well, yeah, thanks so much for that. Thank uh, you. I went a little longer than I anticipated, but I really enjoyed five it. Five hours? So. Yeah, five <laughs> yeah. hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. train, part three. <laughs> part three. Yeah. <laughs> Thank uh, you again. Yeah, very good. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and you want to stay in touch, go follow Roots underscore hospitality over on Instagram for the latest guest news soundbite, anything podcast related. And you might even get some cheeky food pics along the way. 